Our second lesson for the day is found in the Gospel of Luke, the first chapter beginning at verse 26. Here on this Father's Day, we're looking at how God fathered Jesus Christ. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a town in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. Then he came to her and said, Greetings, favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was much perplexed by his words and pondered what sort of greeting this might be. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor or grace with God. And now you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his ancestor, David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I am a virgin? The angel said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be holy. He will be called Son of God. And now your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month for her who was said to be barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. Then Mary said, Here I am, the servant of the Lord. Let it be with me according to your word. Then the angel departed from her. This is the word of God. Friends, would you pray with me? Father, we're so grateful for the precious faith that we share. We are so grateful that you've called us together in this place today. And we ask that you'll give us ears to hear what you're saying to us today. Father, we are so grateful and amazed that it is your nature to communicate with us. So we thank you for your word, and we pray, God, for the grace and the courage to live faithful, obedient lives to Jesus Christ here in this world. God, we pray that because of our time shared this day, we will be better equipped to live as the people of Jesus, the body of Christ in this world. Forgive us, God when we have allowed our minds to be conformed to the thinking of the world around us, but we pray, O God, that you will transform us by the transforming of our minds as we take on the mind of Christ 
and as we receive truth. Help us to build our lives upon the truth that you have revealed. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. So we are continuing in a sermon series looking at some of those core basic convictions of the Christian faith. This age demands that we spend time looking at the core basic convictions of the Christian faith. We are looking what Scripture teaches us about our faith, and we are using the Apostles' Creed as a summary of what Scripture teaches us so that we will be better equipped to make a defense of the faith to this world around us when we are called upon to make a defense of the faith to our world around us. We're doing this sermon series because, as I said last week, what we believe matters. What we believe determines how we live, determines how we act. What we believe matters. And in the Christian community, we believe there is such a thing as truth. Capital T, truth. Now, I know that since the Enlightenment, for the last couple hundred years, here in the West, in Europe, and then the United States, and those who are, are our heirs, people have lived and died as if they believe truth is subjective, truth is relative. All opinions are created equal. You can have your truth, I can have my truth, they can have their truth. But the Christian faith has always been centered on our belief in God, but it does not stop there. Our belief in a God who, who has spoken. Our belief in a God who has revealed himself to us. Our belief in a God who has revealed truth to us. And of course, the truth of God trumps anything this world seeks to offer as truth. And everything else that the world offers as substitutes for God's truth are but mere mere counterfeits to the truth that God gives us. We believe that God has spoken, God has revealed truth, and we believe that truth has a name. Jesus said one day, I am the way, the truth, and the life. We believe that truth is embodied in Jesus Christ. So we believe that truth is something that can be discovered. Truth is something that we can learn because God has revealed it. Truth is not something we vote on. Truth is not something that we discern from our experience is reality. So we believe in truth. We believe that you can be sincere but also be sincerely wrong. That's why we in the historic Christian faith believe that God has spoken and we seek to adjust our lives to the revelation of God. Particularly in this age in which we are living, we need to be able to speak with clarity regarding what the Christian faith believes. Many of the detractors of the Christian faith, and there's always been detractors of the Christian faith, 
live outside of the Christian tradition, the Christian community. But in the last couple hundred years since the Enlightenment, a lot of the detractors of the Christian faith, historic Christian faith, the faith of the scriptures, the faith of the creeds, live in our midst and find value and meaning from being part of the body of Christ. That's why we need to be very, very clear as to what we believe, so that with love, with winsomeness, with gentleness, we can make a defense of the faith. That faith once delivered by the saints, that faith for which we must contend in this age. So we are in this sermon series. We're looking at the truth of the Bible as summarized by the Apostles' Creed. Last week, we talked about what it means to be able to say, I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord. Today, we're moving on to the next section of the Creed that refers to Jesus by saying, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. So what do we mean when we say that we believe he was conceived by the Holy Spirit and he was born of the Virgin Mary? Well, at minimum, we believe that Jesus Christ was born of Mary. I do think we Protestants have not made enough of Mary since our inception, and that was probably because we thought the Roman church made too much of Mary, but in recent years, we've all calmed down and we're pulling each other more toward the middle, which is why I think that hymn in the United Methodist hymnal that references Mary is significant. We need to esteem Mary to the degree that the New Testament esteems Mary. Mary was a simple peasant girl, Mary, simple peasant girl born and living in a simple village in the Galilee, a village called Nazareth, a village that was so simple that it's not even mentioned in the Old Testament or the Hebrew Scriptures. But this simple peasant girl from the simple village of Nazareth is the greatest woman who has ever lived. We do agree on that. She is the greatest woman who, who has ever lived. I think that she is the greatest model of Christian discipleship. She is the proto-model for what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. We need to remind ourselves that God chose this simple Mary, to bear God's child into the world. And that was not an arbitrary choice by God. Mary was obviously the right one to choose. Mary had been raised by Anna and Joachim evidently to be a faithful believer and follower of God. And God knew that this Mary was the right one to choose as that vessel to bring God's child into the world. We notice in the Apostles' Creed that this Mary is one of only two human beings mentioned in the Creed. Next week, we will look at the other human being mentioned in the Creed, Pontius Pilate, but today we're looking at Mary. 
Mary is a tremendous example, a model of discipleship that we should follow. You heard in the text that I read a few moments ago, after the angel came and spoke to, to Mary, that Mary responded with the great words of obedience, here I am, Mary says, here I am, the servant of the Lord, let it be with me according to your word. So I suspect it was from Mother Mary that Jesus learned that important prayer, thy will be done, not mine. That's what Mary prayed this day. Here I am, the servant of the Lord. Let it be according to your will, according to your wishes, according to your word. And I've always been impressed with the very first words that Mary speaks in the Gospel of John. Have you ever wondered what the first words are that Mary speaks in the Gospel of John? Mary plays a very prominent role in the Gospel of John. Even though she's never called Mary in the Gospel of John, she's always referred to as the mother of Jesus, and she plays a prominent role, and the way she burst onto the scene in John's Gospel is significant. Perhaps you recall it occurs in John chapter 2. It's at the wedding of Cana of Galilee. And the first words that Mary speaks after they've ran out of wine are these words. Mary said to the people gathered there that day, do whatever he, Jesus, tells you. John's a masterful author. I think John knows exactly what he's doing. When the first words we hear in his gospel from Mary are those words, do whatever he, Jesus, tells you. I'm sure Mary will continue to say to us, do whatever he, Jesus, tells you. So the historic faith declares that we believe this Jesus was born of Mary, but not just born of Mary, but born of the Virgin Mary. That's core, crucial, critical doctrine for the Christian community. I feel very, very sorry for all the people in our world. And I suspect it's the majority of the people in our world who have formed their lives, they live their lives based upon their core conviction the conviction that they make before they make any other convictions, that miracles do not happen. Many of the people in the modern world, that's their a priori assumption. That's their first most basic assumption about life. Miracles don't happen. And for a lot of people in the modern world, even if they accept rather agnostically that perhaps there's a spiritual realm they are convinced that the spiritual realm never impinges upon or invades this world. And they're foolish enough to call this world the real world. I feel sorry for those people who have demystified the world around us. And they hold the whole world in bondage to logic 
as they can determine logic. And they believe there is no such thing as miracles. If you are in that category, as is most of the modern world, if you're in that category, you are going to have a hard time with the virgin birth. You're going to have a hard time, if you'll stop to think about it, with much of the Christian faith. But you'll have a hard time about the virgin birth. There are a lot of people, and they've always been around since the beginning of our movement. Their tribe has increased in the last 200 years who like to attack our doctrine of the virgin birth. They have said for a couple hundred years now that to hold to a doctrine such as the doctrine of the virgin birth is somehow anti-science because they, they know that's not the way babies happen. Well, you remember the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, Joseph also knew that's not the way babies happen. But he got over it. He learned otherwise. But many of the people in our world have, have taken reality, have taken truth, and they have shrunk it down to their personal experience. And they say there cannot be a virgin birth because that's not the way I've seen babies happen. And some people, and this has been around since almost the beginning of our movement, say that to hold to the virgin birth is somehow anti-female. Because somehow to esteem, as the model of Christian discipleship, for somehow to esteem a model for, for motherhood and womanhood by esteeming a virgin somehow is offensive to all the other women in human history. We've heard it since the beginning of our movement. You know, I believe that had we gotten together 2,000 years ago and, and, and created a mythology for the Christian faith, we would have created a mythology for the Christian faith that would be easier to defend to the skeptics than the Christian faith we have. You see, since the very beginning, it's been hard, it's been problematic to believe in a virgin birth. Soon after the time of Jesus, there were people in the Roman Empire who said, virgin birth, there could not be such a thing as a virgin birth. And we have it in the historical record, and I know somebody personally who still believes this, we have it in the historical record that Mary, that young peasant girl in Nazareth, was raped by a Roman soldier named Pantera. And they just created this, this fallacy about a virgin birth to protect her image. People have had problems with the virgin birth of Jesus since the beginning. And um, it's outside the church and it's even inside the church. I remember when I was in seminary, and I'm sure the other pastors in the room uh, like Nick and Joel will, will perhaps remember this. It, it used to be a, a, a joke for clergy. When you got to the topic of the virgin birth, they would say something like, well, I just stand with the Apostle Paul on the virgin birth. Well, of course, Paul doesn't mention the virgin birth. So that was their way of getting out of confessing or professing a belief in the virgin birth. Paul does not talk about the virgin birth, but Matthew certainly does. Luke certainly does. And it's certainly there in the oldest tradition 
of the Christian church. We believe that Jesus was born not just of Mary, but we believe Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary. And we, early on in our movement, deemed that to be a core central conviction in the Christian faith because it's tied to the deity and the divinity of Jesus Christ. You know, in, in the other, in the Gospel of Mark, you read the names of the brothers and sisters of Jesus. And we acknowledge that there were other children of Mary in the Protestant tradition. But we are quick, usually quick, to say they're at most half-brothers and half-sisters. They shared Mother Mary, but they did not share the same father. And that's why we can proclaim the deity of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. Christ is our God come to earth. Christ shares the very nature of God. Christ is of the same light as God. And that's central to what it means to be a Christ follower. So this Jesus was not just born of Mary. This Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary. But this Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit. God is the Father of Jesus. Mary contributed her DNA to Jesus, but God is the Father of Jesus. God spoke but a word, and Mary was overshadowed, according to the text, and became great with child. This is how God entered human history. We call that the doctrine of the incarnation. It's stands at the center of our faith, God taking flesh and dwelling among us. This is why when Philip said to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father, Jesus could say, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. This is why Jesus also could say in the Gospel of John, I and the Father are one. Jesus Christ was able to accomplish what Jesus Christ accomplished for us because of who Jesus Christ is. And we, at least those who profess the name of Christ, need to be clear who Jesus Christ is and need to be able to present with clarity to the world around us who we think Jesus Christ is. Jesus has a lot of fans in this world a lot of people who want to go with him at least to the point of being a great teacher, their spiritual guru. But the faith of the Christian community, the faith of the New Testament, as we spoke about last week, is so, so much more. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, for you and for me. We should be completely overwhelmed at what all God has done for us. As the old gospel song says, he left the glories of heaven and he got into the mess of this world for us. The Christian faith says that God loves us so much 
that God came to earth for us, God decided he would rather go through hell for us than to live in heaven without us. And that should change everything about life for us. As you sit here in this place this morning, I hope that you understand your value to God. Understand what God has done and is doing for you and realize that the most reasonable thing in the world for any of us to do now is to give our life back to God. I hope that you know your value and I hope that you feel the Father's affection and love in this place. Would you join me in prayer as we invite the Holy Spirit to, to finish this message? Great God, we thank you that we can claim you as our Father. We thank you for the relationship that you are offering to us through Jesus Christ. We thank you for taking us and claiming us as your people through the waters of baptism. We thank you for using us as your people here in this world to do your work. And may your call upon our lives be central to who we are. Fill us with your Holy Spirit. We pray, God, that we will allow Jesus Christ to be central to who we are. May we allow Jesus to be King and Lord of our lives. And may the world around us know that it is to Him that we belong. Father, I pray that if there's anyone in this place today who has not opened their life up to You, they've been living in rebellion, that they will lay down their will, their wishes today, and receive Jesus Christ as the Lord and the King of their lives. We pray, God, that you will come and rule and reign in our hearts, in our minds, and in our very lives. Amen.